Today I'm continuing teaching on the subject of financial stewardship. We've already covered the first teaching in that, which is talking about developing this mindset of being a steward, that God is your source. God is the one who has blessed you. It's not really your money. It's God's money that He's entrusted to you. And you need to get that mindset. I tell you, that is a powerful truth. I really don't think that anybody is going to go very far in the kingdom of God in prosperity until you develop that mindset and uh, open up your hand instead of hoarding everything, let go and say, God, it's yours. When you do that, God won't take from you, but instead He will bless you and multiply. God is not a subtractor. He's a multiplier. But it takes faith to be able to do that, and I think that that's one of the very first steps. Now, let's turn over to Luke chapter 16. Now, there's a parable that Jesus taught about an unjust steward who had been stealing money from his master, and that's in verses 1 through 8. In verse 9, Jesus gives the interpretation and the application of this parable, and I'm going to come back to this. I tell you, this is one of the most least understood passages of Scripture in the Bible, and yet this has become one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the Bible. I get tremendous things out of this, and I believe that it can be that way for you. So we're going to come back and teach on that. But I want to drop on down to Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. And look at some of the radical statements Jesus made right here. In verse 10, he says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Now, you know, it's often that we take a scripture like this out of context and we make applications for it that the scripture didn't really intend. And I'm not saying that those applications are totally wrong because this is a principle that could apply in more than just finances. For instance, in our school, we often have people come to our Bible college and they feel a call to the ministry and they want to go out and pastor a church or do some kind of a television or radio ministry or something like this. And they come here and they see me on television and they see other pastors that come in and speak. And so they get this goal, and they just want to go immediately upon graduation out and pastor a thousand-member church. And yet they've never worked in a youth ministry. They've never done a children's ministry. They've never been an associate. They have no experience. They're just wanting to go from zero to where they're having a thousand people all at once. And we use this same principle, and often this scripture will be applied this way, that if you haven't, first of all, been faithful in that which is least, you can't be faithful over much. If you haven't been a children's pastor, if you haven't been an associate pastor, if you haven't ever taught a group of anybody and you've never had ministry experience, it's completely irrational for you to think that you're going to go from never having ministered into being an effective minister over a thousand people. There is a growth process. And so people will often take scriptures like this and say, if you want to go to the top, start at the bottom, clean the toilets, uh, vacuum the floors, do these things and work your way up. And you know, that's a scriptural principle. And that's in many places in scripture. But here's my point. In context, Luke chapter 16, verse 10, where Jesus said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. In context, Jesus is talking about our stewardship over money. So the thing that he's saying here is least, the least area of stewardship is finances, is what he's talking about. Now that is a radical statement. That is, that is a powerful statement, and it just goes completely contrary to the way that most people think. Matter of fact, when I teach on television and radio on the subject of finances, I always get somebody upset. I actually got a letter one time from a guy. This was when I was on radio only, and this guy was up in the Denver, Colorado area. He heard me over KLT, a station that I've been on there for a long, long time, and he heard me teaching on the subject of prosperity, financial prosperity. And this guy wrote a letter to the radio station. The radio station forwarded it on to me. And this guy was just livid. He even talked about suing me. 
course, I don't know how he thought he could do that, but nonetheless, he mentioned suing me, and he was just so upset saying that you would use airtime to talk about money instead of talking about the greater issues of the kingdom of God. And he said, that is totally irresponsible. How, how dare you do this? And he came out and threatened to sue me, do all of these things. Anyway, I wrote the guy a letter back and never heard back from him. But the point that he was making is he says, ah, oh, this, this isn't important and stuff. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in a sense that trusting God in finances is the least area of trusting God. But instead of taking the, the view that this man who is critical of me is, here's the logic. Jesus went on to say in verse 11, If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Instead of taking the mindset that because Jesus is saying that trusting God in the area of finances is the least and saying, therefore, we shouldn't even talk about it. We ought to go on to the greater things. Here's the, here's the rationale. If you can't do that which is least, you can't do that which is greatest. If you can't lift five pounds, I can guarantee you, you shouldn't start a weightlifting program trying to lift a hundred pounds. You have to start with that which is least and work your way up. If you can't walk 10 paces, you can't walk a mile. If you can't run a mile, you certainly can't run 10 miles. If you started an exercise program, you don't start with that which is greatest. You start with that which is least and work your way up. You know, if I couldn't jump from here, but just two or three feet, if I couldn't do that which is least, then I can guarantee you I couldn't jump 20 or 30 or 40 feet. I mean, you would be wise. If you saw me and I couldn't jump two or three feet, boy, you ought to put all the money you got on the line that I am not going to be able to jump 20 feet. If I can't do that which is least, I can't do that which is greatest. And Jesus is saying that trusting God with your finances is the least area of trusting God. It's the least use of your faith. Boy, that's profound. And if you can't do that which is least, that's the very reason that you aren't seeing the greater things come to pass that you're trying to believe for. Did you know that believing for your family to be restored, believing for finances, I mean, believing for healing to come into your body, believing for emotional things, all of those things are infinitely bigger and greater than believing for finances. So... If you haven't started trusting God in your finances yet, then how can you go past that to trusting God for the healing of your body? How can you trust God for the um, restoration of your family? How can you trust God to get over depression if you can't do that which is least? And let me just make a radical statement here. I know some of you are going to choke on this. But how can a person trust God for the salvation of their soul, their eternal destiny, to be born again and trust Him in that area but not trust Him in the Scriptures that say, Give and it shall be given unto you. The Scripture that says that you're supposed to give a tithe. And yet they can't trust that. But they're saying, Oh, I'm trusting God for this infinitely more important thing, the salvation of my soul. That's like me saying, I can't jump three feet, but I can guarantee you, I'm believing that I can jump 30 feet. I'm going to skip all these other steps. I'm, just, I'm believing that I can jump 30 feet, but I can't jump three feet. It just doesn't work that way. You know what? For a person to say, well, I know that I'm saved, and I've committed my life to the Lord, and I'm born again, and I trust His Word that when I confess with my mouth, Jesus is my Lord, and believe in my heart, that God raised him from the dead, like Romans 10, 9 says, I believe I'm saved. I've trusted him for my eternal salvation. But the same Bible that recorded Romans 10, 9, also recorded Luke 6, 38, Give, and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall man give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured unto you again." The same Bible that uh, gave Romans 10, 9 also gave Luke 6, 38. 
How can you say that you can trust God for the greater thing if you can't trust Him for the smaller thing? That's inconsistent. The point that I'm making through all of this is that trusting God in our finances is infinitely more important than what it's been given credit for. Many people are trying to bypass this, sidestep it, and just miss the smaller things and go on towards these bigger things. I tell you what, it doesn't work that way in any other area of life. If you want to run a mile, start walking first. If you want to lift weights, start with a smaller weight before you build up to a bigger weight. If you want to do anything, you have to start at the bottom and work your way up. You can't jump from the ground to the top of a ladder. You start on the bottom rung and work up. Trusting God in the area of your finances is a beginning place. It's a starting place. And if you aren't trusting God, if you don't have a revelation of financial prosperity, and if you aren't truly trusting God, which I'm going to give you some signs of how you can tell whether you're trusting God in that area or not, then you're deceiving your own self to believe that you're trusting God in other areas. You know, about uh, seven or eight years ago, I forget exactly how long ago, I was in Yucaipa, California, and I taught on these exact passages of Scripture. And um, as I taught on this, I mean, God just really impacted people. They saw this truth. And there were people who were trying to receive from God in the, all of these other areas, emotional healing, uh, families being restored, uh, all of these kind of things. And yet they hadn't trusted God with their finances. And God really touched hearts. So after I taught on this, I received an offering. I believe it would be irresponsible to teach on all of this and not give people an opportunity to act on what you talked about. But lest anybody think that I did this for selfish reasons, I I took up the offering and I gave it back to the church. I didn't receive any benefit from it whatsoever. And as they were passing the buckets and I was sitting there, the Lord just spoke to me and says, because these people now have started trusting me in this area of finances and their, their faith has been quickened, now watch what will happen. And I got up, and I mean miracles started happening. And I forget exactly what happened. It's been, like I said, seven or eight years ago. I think it was two blind people. It was either two blind people or two deaf people. I'm not sure which it was. But either way, it was a miracle. Their eyes or ears were open. Miracles happened. People started being healed. Arthritis was healed. Backs were healed. People started receiving the power of God. And we started seeing such a demonstration of the power of God that we actually had people run to the front and say, Can I get saved? They wanted to serve a God like this. And all of this came out of teaching on the subject of finances. And I actually saw with my own eyes that the reason some of these people hadn't been healed and they hadn't been saved was because they had never trusted God in this area of finances. Now, I know that that's not the way most people view it. Most people think, look, let's just preach the foundation truths about salvation. Let's just get people born again make sure that they're saved, make sure that they have a basic foundation, and let's save finances and teaching on giving and things like this for the mature saints, for those that want to go on and get a master's degree. You know, it's for further education. This isn't foundational stuff. But Jesus is saying just the opposite. This is so foundational that if you can't trust God with your finances, that's one of the reasons that you haven't been able to receive your healing. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Somebody's going to take this and say, so you're saying that if you will just give, then you can get your healing. You can buy your healing. No, that's not what I'm saying. You can't buy the blessing of God. You only can receive it by faith. Faith is the only thing that makes anything God has ever done for us manifest and come to pass in our life. But I'm saying that using your faith for finances is the least use of your faith that there is. And if you can't do that which is least, or let me say it this way, if you haven't done that which is least, then you are deceiving yourself to think that you are doing these other things. I meet people all of the time that come to me for healing and for emotional things and things like this. And you know what? I'll just have to be real honest with you. I'm probably not as bold in this area as I need to be. I get a tremendous amount of criticism, it seems like, already. And so uh, I probably should be stronger. But I know in my heart that there are times that people come to me and they're believing God for healing of cancer. And they've never started believing God 
that His promise concerning giving and receiving is true. They don't tithe. They don't give. They don't trust God. And yet they're saying, oh, I don't, I don't do that which is least. I can't lift five pounds, but I can lift 150 pounds, no problem. You know, it just didn't, it isn't true. And I know in my heart that sometimes people haven't even started trusting God in their smallest thing, the finances, and yet they're trying to believe for healing of cancer. They're trying to believe to be delivered of depression. They're trying to believe for their marriage to be put together. And yet they've never trusted God in that which is least. Now there's been a few times, probably not as many as there should be, but I remember one time in Atlanta that a woman, a a lady who was a friend of mine, came to me and she was asking me to pray for something and the Lord just quickened to me that she hadn't been paying her tithes. And this was a woman that should have been paying her tithes and that knew better and at one time had been paying her tithes. And yet the Lord quickened that to me and so I just stopped and I said, how are you on your giving? Have you been tithing? Have you been giving? And this woman looked at me and she says, no, she says, I fell behind and I hadn't been doing that. And here she was trying to believe God for healing and yet she wasn't doing that which is least. And I said, you know what? Until you start acting on the things that you know, until you start using your faith for those smaller things, there's no point in me praying for you for these bigger things. I know that there's people that you're just living saying, how dare you to tie the things of God to being faithful in your finances. Man, that's just, that's terrible that you say those kind of things. But did you know that Jesus did the exact same thing? in Mark chapter 10, and with the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and it looked good, but Jesus recognized his heart wasn't right. And you know what Jesus did? He said, take everything you've got, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Jesus said, until you can trust me in that which is least, you can't trust me in that which is greater. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. But look at these other verses here. I've already read these, but in verse 11, Luke 16, 11, If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, talking about money, who will commit to your trust the true riches? In other words, money, we talk about that as being riches, but it's really nothing compared to health. You know, people pay millions of dollars trying to get well, and yet, you know, your health is worth more than millions of dollars. There's no way to put a price on your health. There's things that are more important than just money. And yet he's saying if you haven't been faithful in just money, then how are you ever going to be counted faithful? How are people ever going to give you these greater truths, these greater things? See, what I'm trying to get across in all of this is that you need to start trusting God in this area of finances. You need to start being faithful as a steward in this area of finances. And those of you who think, oh, I don't have to do that. You know what? I need to be healed. I need my marriage put together. I need to be delivered of depression. I need all of these other things. And maybe after I get that, then I might start giving and doing some of these things. No, the Bible says it's just opposite. You got to start with that which is least and work your way up. One of the reasons that many of you haven't received from God is because you aren't acting on what you know to be true. You know that the Word of God says, Honor God with the first fruits of your increase, that you were supposed to tithe and be honoring God, and yet you don't do that. And yet you're trying to receive from God. You're trying to use your faith over here, and yet you aren't using it in that which is least. I tell you, that's a recipe for disaster. If a person can't lift five pounds and they start trying to lift 300 pounds, if you're laying down on a bench press and you've never lifted five pounds, but you're going to try and lift 300 pounds, you're going to hurt something. Probably yourself. (laughs) It's just not smart. You know what? You have to start with something that you can manage. You need to start at that which is least. There are some of you that are trying to believe God for healing of cancer, and yet you aren't trusting God in your finances. That's foolish. You're going to be hurt. You're at the very least going to be frustrated and disappointed and probably become bitter when you don't see your physical body heal and you'll think, God, it didn't work. No, faith works, but you just have to work it. You have to start with that which is least, is what he's saying. In verse 12, And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. He's saying here that you can't serve God in this area and say, Oh, I trust God. I'd lay down my life 
If somebody put a gun to my head, I'd be faithful. I'd be a martyr. I will not deny the Lord. You're going to stand in faith over here, but you aren't going to stand in faith when it comes to finances. You aren't going to follow the leadership that God has given us in His Word about giving a tithe and giving offerings and being generous. You're saying, I can do the greater, but I can't do the less. You're wrong. You're crazy. I'm not saying those things to hurt you. I'm saying those things to enlighten you. I'm saying this is why you're frustrated. This is why you say that, oh, I'm trusting God. And you're saying that you're standing on faith for healing, and yet you aren't seeing any physical manifestation. Well, go back to this area of finances. Are you trusting God in your finances? If you aren't, don't look any further than that. Because you know what? Your faith isn't genuine. Your faith at the very least would be compartmentalized to where you're trying to trust God over here. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. If you're going to trust God, just trust Him. Trust Him in every area of your life. Trust Him not only with your physical body and with your eternal salvation, but trust Him with your finances. The same God who said that if you would confess Him as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10.9 That same God said, Give and it shall be given unto you. And actually the promise concerning finances is a least area compared to these other things. Now that's powerful. Let me just read this to you again. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Now this is Jesus speaking. This is his perspective on things. And if you take it in the context, the verses right in front, he had given a parable about the unjust steward who had been stealing money. It was talking about money. The verse right after it talks about the unrighteous mammon, which is an old English word for money. In verse 13, it says you cannot serve God in mammon, which is an old English word for money. All of it's talking about money. So what the Lord is saying here is that trusting God in this area of finances, is the least area of trusting Him. If you can't do that which is least, you can't do that which is greater. Boy, this is a powerful, powerful statement. And I believe that this is the very reason that so many Christians are stuck in their walk with the Lord, that they've plateaued, they're stagnant, is because they haven't started trusting God in this area of finances. And because of it, it hinders their entire walk with the Lord. You know, let me say it this way. I don't know one person, not a single person, who I consider to be a mature Christian who is not just believing God momentarily, but you can tell that a year from now, two years from now, they're still going to be going on with God. They have a total commitment to the Lord. I don't know a single person like that who I would consider to be a mature Christian who doesn't trust God with their finances. They tithe, they give, they trust God, and they are seeing God work miracles in this area of finances. Not a single mature Christian that I know of doesn't trust God with their finances. But on the other hand, I could give you thousands and thousands and thousands of examples of people who have come to me who they love God and they are probably born again, but they haven't trusted God in their area of finances, and their life is just like a yo-yo, up and down. You don't know for sure if they're going to be serving God the next time you come to that city. There is no confidence. You couldn't recommend them. You couldn't uh, put them in a position of leadership because there just isn't stability in their life. Just about every one of those is not a faithful giver. They haven't yet learned to trust God in their finances. Now, can you draw a conclusion from that? I think I can. I think I can say people that don't trust God in this area of finances are not mature, stable Christians. People who are mature, stable Christians will always trust God in this area of finances. Just like Jesus said, this is the least use of your faith. And if you can't do that which is least, you will never uh, obtain to that which is greater. You will never become mature. You will never become stable unless you start trusting God in this area of finances. This isn't optional. This is basic Christianity 101. 
I believe that this ought to be one of the very first things that is taught. Some people take offense at me talking about it and they say, you shouldn't be using television time for this. This is for the mature Christians. This is for the people that want to be stark raving mad fanatics. This is for those that want to go on to something greater. You ought to tell them about finances, but let's just preach the foundation scriptures and just get them born again. Do you know that's not the approach that Jesus took? Jesus ministered to people when he recognized that there was some kind of a reservation in their heart that they weren't completely committed unto him. Jesus used finances to reveal what was in a person's heart. Let me give you an instance of this in Mark chapter 10. In verse 17, this is where the rich young ruler came unto Jesus. And in verse 17, Mark 10, 17, it says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Now get the picture of this. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to just read through Scripture and we don't really think about it so that it has its full impact on us. But Jesus was a radical figure in His day, a controversial figure. And the scribes and the Pharisees said that if anybody acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, that He was going to be kicked out of the synagogue. So there was rejection, persecution associated with those who associated themselves with Jesus. But here's a man who ran and fell at the feet of Jesus and cried out, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So when you understand the background here that there was a lot of persecution and rejection, he could have been kicked out of the synagogue, this guy had some degree of commitment towards the Lord. I mean, it would be very demonstrative. If you were in one of my meetings, and I was up there preaching, and say there's 500,000 people out there, and all of a sudden somebody runs and throws themselves on the platform at my feet and says, Can I get saved? You know, most people would think, boy, this person is really sincere. Most of us would think that, boy, this is just so good, there couldn't be any reservations, any problems in their heart whatsoever. But Jesus recognized that this man, even though he was very demonstrative, threw himself at the feet of Jesus, Jesus recognized this guy wasn't all he claimed to be. He wasn't really willing to commit himself to the Lord. And you know one of the reasons... Jesus knew that. Look at this in verse 17. He came and ran and he said, Good master. You know, master in those days was similar to the way we use Mr. or Mrs. It was just a term of an address, a term of respect. They would call people master that they didn't necessarily submit to. So this isn't necessarily the same thing that it would apply to us today. And when he just ascribed him as a good master immediately Jesus had a red flag knowing that this man wasn't really willing to commit himself to Jesus as being God. And his statements here reveal that. Because look look how Jesus responded to him. In verse 18, Jesus said unto him, Why are you calling me good? There is none good but one that is God. In other words, he says, Look, you are calling me a good master, but you're going to have to go beyond that. You're going to have to receive me as Lord and Master. You're going to have to accept me as God. If Jesus was going to be a sacrifice for this man's sins, he had to be God to be able to atone. One man's sacrifice isn't worth any more than one man's life. For Jesus to be the Savior of the world, he had to be more than a man. He had to be God manifest in the flesh. Jesus said that He was God. He called Himself God. He referred to Himself as the Son of God. He said in the fifth chapter of the book of John that you have to honor Him exactly the way you honor the Father. If you don't honor Him as much as you honor God the Father, then you are not honoring God the Father. Now there's some confusion about that today. There's some people calling themselves Jehovah's Witnesses that are saying that Jesus is a great person, a good person, a good example, but He's not God, He's not Jehovah. Well, they haven't read Isaiah chapter 45 and 46 where it says, I, Jehovah, am the Holy One of God, which Jesus was called the Holy One many times. Anyway, I'm not going to get off and preach on that, but there are people who are trying to make Jesus less than God, Jehovah, 
Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. And he approached this rich young ruler and he says, Why are you calling me good? I'm either who I say that I am. I am either, like it says in John chapter 14, verse 6, the only way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said of himself. Now, either Jesus was who he said he was, God manifest in the flesh, there is no salvation in anybody else, or Jesus was an imposter, a liar, and a deceiver. You can't make him... Well, he wasn't who he said he was, but he was a great example. No, he was either a liar and a deceiver, or he was who he said he was, God manifest in the flesh. And there is no options. You have to accept him that way. Again, there's a lot of people that have tried to say, well, Jesus is the greatest example of love that the world has ever seen, and they try and submit to him to a degree. But Jesus would do to them the same thing he did to this rich young ruler. And he says, why are you just accepting me as good? Why are you saying I'm an example? I'm either who I say I am or I'm nothing. I'm a deceiver. I'm a liar. It's one of the two. And the answer is that he is who he said he was. And so Jesus said, quit calling me good and call me God or just drop the good. You know what what this man did in verse 20? He answered and said unto Jesus, Master, all of these have I observed for my youth. You know what he did? He dropped the good. Jesus says, don't call me good. I'm either God. God's the only one who's good. So either call me God or just quit calling me good. You know what? He dropped the good and he responded by saying, Master. You know what? Jesus recognized that this man, his heart wasn't right. He was wanting something that Jesus could offer He looked at Jesus as a leader, but he wasn't willing to just bow the knee and make Jesus Lord over his life. He wasn't willing to accept Him as God. And Jesus knew this, and so He told him to keep the commandments. And this is another teaching. I'm not going to take time to go into this, but uh, anyway, He told him to keep the commandments. And this man responded by saying, Master, all of these have I observed from my youth. Now, you know what the truth is? This man hadn't observed every command from his youth. Nobody has ever observed all of the commands. And when Jesus came, he revealed that it's not just not committing adultery, but he says, even if you've looked on a woman and lusted after her in your heart, you've committed adultery. It's not just not murdering a person, but if you're angry without a cause, you're guilty of murder in your heart. When you look at it from what Jesus revealed, nobody has ever kept all of these commands. This man, when he says, all of these have I observed from my youth. Did you know he was deceived? He had been very religious, but he wasn't good enough. He hadn't earned salvation. And to prove it, you know what Jesus told him? In verse 21, it says, Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. You know what Jesus was doing? It says right here in the 21st verse, Jesus beholding him loved him and said unto him. Jesus didn't say these things because he hated him and wanted to drive him away. He was wanting to help this man. But this man was in deception, thinking that he had kept all of the commands of God. You know what Jesus did? He told him, in a sense, you've broken the very first command. The very first command, Exodus chapter 20 says, You shall have no other gods before me. This man's God was his money. He trusted in money and what money could do for him more than he trusted in God. He broke the very first command. He hadn't kept all of the commandments of God. In his heart, he was trusting in his money. Colossians chapter 3, I believe it's verse 5, says that covetousness is idolatry. Did you know that desiring things and just lusting after things is idolatry? The very first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. This man's money was his God. And Jesus didn't say these things to drive him away, but because he loved him, he was wanting him to recognize that, fellow, you haven't kept all the commandments. You can't earn salvation on your own goodness. You need to humble yourself and recognize that you haven't truly trusted in God. The very first command, you've broken it. Your trust isn't in God. You aren't loving God. You trust in your money. 
And if you really want to get into the kingdom of God, then quit trusting in your money. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And then come and follow me and you shall have treasure in heaven. Now this man left before Jesus was able to say this. But after, wow, we'll go on through these scriptures. After this man was gone, Jesus' disciples started asking him what he had said about money. And he made this statement in verse 29. He says, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. And so it says, There hath no man... That means this rich young ruler, if he would have obeyed Jesus and have given away everything that he had, Jesus said nobody will ever do that but what they will receive a hundredfold return on their giving in this life with persecutions. So this would have applied to this rich young ruler. Jesus wasn't trying to take from him. Jesus didn't tell him to sell everything he had and put it into his treasury. He said go give it to the poor. This wasn't self-motivated. It wasn't manipulation. He was saying this because this man's trust was in his money and not in God. His money and trust in money was actually a blockage, a hindrance between him and his relationship with God. So the reason I bring all of this out is to say that Jesus used people's attitude towards money to reveal what their heart was really like. This rich young ruler looked like he was really serving God. But you know what? He wasn't. And I'm sure that he had given before. Since he was a Jew and he said he had kept all of these commandments, now I don't believe he had really fulfilled it all, but he had made an attempt at it. He had probably lived a pretty good life. And certainly one of the commands of God is that you're supposed to take a tenth of your substance and give back. This guy had probably been a tither. This guy had probably given... But you know, it says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, that if you give all of your goods to feed the poor or if you give your body to be burned, but don't do it motivated by love. In other words, if you're doing it out of a debt, out of an obligation, if you're doing it in order to buy God's blessing, it, then it says it profits you nothing. This man had probably given before but he had never given sacrificially. He had never given to the point that Jesus was discussing here where he just sells everything he has and give it to the poor. He had never given to the degree that if God's promises weren't true, he was just done for. And he had to trust totally in God. He had his trust in money. And Jesus used his attitude towards money to reveal what was in his heart. You know, if we were to minister this same way today, I can guarantee you we would get a lot of criticism. I've already been on some of these programs where they expose people as cults. and I've had people call me a cult and criticize me and do all these kind of things. And yet, I'm nothing like what Jesus did. You know, this would be comparable to me in one of my meetings. If a person came forward for salvation in front of hundreds of people, And if I was to have a word of knowledge and say, you know what, you aren't trusting God in your giving. Go sell everything you have. Go sell your car, sell your house, sell everything, sell your stocks, sell your bonds, sell everything you've got and give all of the money away to the poor. And then come and I'll pray with you for salvation. You know, if I was to do something like that, I can guarantee you I would make all of the Christian talk shows. I'd probably make some secular papers I guarantee you, people would come out at me and blast me from one end to the other. How dare you say that a person has to sell everything before they can follow Jesus? That's exactly what Jesus said right here. Now, he didn't do this to everybody because, again, the issue wasn't this man's money. Jesus didn't make everybody sell everything. He went into Zacchaeus' house, who was a very wealthy man, and Zacchaeus had gotten all of his money through theft through deception and and stealing. And Jesus went in and ate at this man's house and blessed him. And this man voluntarily says, I'm going to give half of my goods to feed the poor. And if I've stolen anything from any man, I'll, I'll repay it four times over what I stole from him. And you know what? Jesus didn't ask him to do that. He volunteered it. Jesus didn't do this same thing to every person because the issue wasn't money. 
The issue is where your heart is. Are you really trusting God? And that's what money is really all about. God has given us money because we need money to be able to function in this system that we live in. And so God helps meet our needs. But what is the real issue here? It's about whether you trust God as being the source of your finances. Whether you really are trusting Him or whether you're just operating out of fear and and believing it's totally based on the economy, how your finances go. It's totally based on what you do. Or are you really trusting God? Well, there's a lot of Christians who would say, oh, well, I'm really trusting God. Well, you know how you can tell? Go look at their giving record. Do these people give a tenth of their income? Do they give offerings above a tenth? Or are they holding and hoarding things? I know many of you will be upset, but this is exactly the point that Jesus was saying, that you know what? It's not true. It's not genuine. This man ran and fell at the feet of Jesus and looked really sincere. But he wasn't sincere. He was only sincere to a degree. He wasn't willing to run up a white flag and to make Jesus Lord of everything. And you know how Jesus proved it? He looked at his giving. says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And the man wouldn't do it. He went away sad because he had great possessions. I can guarantee you if Jesus was here in his physical body on this earth today, he would be talking about finances. He would be talking about whether or not our trust is in God or whether it's in all of our stocks and bonds and everything that we've got. And Jesus would be promoting giving and selling everything you've got and giving it to the poor. And he would be doing the same things that he did right here in Scripture. And he would be persecuted to the max by the religious system today for making such a big deal out of the way we administer our stewardship over finances. But this is the heart of God. God is concerned. God wants every bit of you. He doesn't want just one hour a week at church. He doesn't want just a little tip every once in a while. He wants all of you. And how is it that He gets you to take the most dominant area of your life? You work 40 to 50, 60 hours a week making money. How is it that God gets you to trust Him in that area of your life? It's real simple. He says, give portion of what you've earned to me back as recognition that I am the one who gives you power to get wealth. In recognition that I will bless you when you give, it shall be given unto you. And that's why the Lord asked for you to give. It's not because God needs it. You need to trust Him. And God wants you to trust Him with all of your heart. And so just like this rich young ruler, he told him to sell everything he has. God hadn't told you to sell everything, but He does tell you to give a tenth and to give offerings and to trust Him in this area of finances. And I guarantee you, if you aren't willing to do that, then it makes it questionable about whether all of the other things you profess are true or not. That's a strong word, but it's the truth. Here's another passage. Jesus said this over in Matthew chapter 6. This is during His teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, in verse 19, it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Now this is an interesting passage of Scripture. It says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You can tell where a person's heart is by where their money goes. That's a strong statement, but it's absolutely true. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, Jesus told this man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and if you really love me more than you love this money, then do this. Do you know, this man wouldn't do it because his heart was really set on what those riches could provide for him. Did you know that money gives you power? It gives you clout. It enables you to do things that you can't do without money. You know, I could guarantee you if we were in a room right now, And if one of the richest men in the world walked in, I guarantee you that would give him power. It would give him authority. He would be able to do things that a poor person wouldn't be able to do. There is power in money. And if you aren't careful, you'll get to where you trust more in the power of money than you do in God. And so the Lord 
is aware of this. This is why he said so many of the things that he said about finances. That's why he told this man to go sell everything he had. Not because he hated him and wanted to drive him away. It says in verse 21 that he said these things because he loved him. He wanted this man to be free from the power, the hold that that money was having over him and devote himself to God alone. Now, if he would have done it, down in verses 29 and 30, the Lord said it would have come back unto him a hundredfold in this life. He would have gotten it back. It's not just an eternity that what we give away is returned unto us, but in this life, God will bless back to us houses and lands and families and people and all of these things. Financial, material goods will come back to us when we give. So the Lord wasn't trying to take from this man. He was just trying to get him to give away his money so that he could put his total trust and dependence upon God. Did you know if we were to apply this same standard to people today, we would be persecuted beyond measure, even by the church But this is exactly what Jesus was teaching. And it all goes back to what I was saying from Luke 16, 10, where Jesus said, if you aren't faithful in that which is least, you will not be faithful in that which is much. You have to start trusting God in this area of finances. And basically, the church hasn't emphasized this. We preach just a little bit on finances, but the real motivation for it is the reason we preach on it is so that you could give to me, send your money to me. And we preach just enough to get people to finance the church, to finance ministries and do things like this. But you know what? We don't preach on finances the way that Jesus did right here. Now again, I want to put this into its proper perspective. The Lord didn't tell everybody to sell everything they had. He told this man because this man's money was God to him. Now not everybody is to that same deal. And so the Lord, it's not a prerequisite to be born again that you have to give away all of your money. But I'm saying you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to literally turn your life over to God. And the Lord explains these things in the next few verses. After he told this rich young ruler this, look at what happened in the 22nd verse. It says he, talking about the rich young ruler, was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. In other words, this is saying he didn't follow the instructions of Jesus. He didn't sell everything he had and give it to the poor because he he just could not trust God more than he trusted that money. And so he left and didn't become a follower of Jesus. In verse 23, it says, And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples. Now here's Jesus giving a commentary on what just happened with this rich young ruler. The rich young ruler wanted what Jesus had to offer, but he wasn't willing to make a total commitment to Jesus. He wanted to retain his trust and confidence in that money. Jesus said, get rid of it, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And he wouldn't do it. And here's how Jesus commented on this to his disciples. In verse 23, Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Man, what a statement. How hardly, you could say it this way, how hard is it for rich people to be born again? And did you know that there's people that just, I can't believe that you said that. I'm quoting to you scriptures. That is just a modern day way of saying exactly what Jesus said. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And look at the reaction of the disciples in verse 24. It says his disciples were astonished at his words, just like I'm sure a lot of you listening to me are astonished at what I'm saying. But I'm, but see, that's the right reaction. That's the same reaction that the disciples had. They were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Now, if we didn't have verse 24, if the scripture would have only given us verse 23... Did you know you could have made all kinds of uh, statements out of this? You could have said that rich people, people who have lots of money, cannot be saved. Because that's kind of what verse 23 is inferring. But Jesus clarified it when he saw the astonished reaction of his disciples. And in verse 24, he made it very clear. He said, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Money's not the problem. It's where is our trust Is your trust, is your reliance, your source, or you could say it this way, is your security in your money or is it in God? 
Now that's a question that everybody needs to answer. Jesus is making it clear it's not the money that's the issue, but it's the issue of where is your trust? Are you trusting in your riches? Well, people would say, oh no, I'm not trusting in my wealth. I'm not trusting in my money. My trust is in God. Again, we know that that's the right answer. And so there's a lot of people that would say that. But you know what? You've got to do more than just say it. As it says over in James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. If a person is saying, oh, my trust is in the Lord, but the Lord tells us to give 10% of everything He gives to us and that we are supposed to give 10% back and even more than 10%, we're supposed to give offerings on top of that. And if you aren't doing that, then you know what? You can say that your trust is in God, but it's not. And I know that this is just... Some people think that this is terrible, but I'm just exactly the way that Jesus said when He spoke to this rich young ruler. It says He beheld him and He loved him, and that's why He told him to sell everything He had and give it to the poor, because He loved him. You know what? It's bondage for your trust to be in finances, to be in things. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't use money. I'm not saying that, you know, I've heard some people teach on finances in a way that they make it sound like it's terrible to have any. And I'm thinking, well, if that's the way you feel, then just send all of yours to me, amen, (laughs) if you really think that having money is somehow or another sinful or terrible. That's not what I'm saying. It's not the money that's the issue. It's where is your trust Are you trusting in that money? And you can tell by whether or not you're a giver. Did you know if you go back and look at people in the Bible, Abraham was a super prosperous man, so much so that twice kings came out and said, you need to leave our nation because your net worth is worth more than our whole national worth. We can't sustain you. Leave. This was a super, super blessed, prosperous man. Isaac was even more blessed. His son Jacob was even more blessed. And on and on you could go. God blessed people supernaturally. David was blessed of God. He started out being nothing, just a little shepherd boy. And he became king over the nation. So that in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, David, out of his own personal bank account, gave $2 billion worth of gold and silver to build the kingdom. David had money. Abraham had money. Solomon was one of the richest men that had ever lived on the face of the earth. And on and on and on and on and on you could go. Matter of fact, there are scriptures in the Old Testament that says, Honor the Lord with the first fruits and with the increase of your substance and stuff. And as you do that, God will bless you and He will increase you. There are promises for financial blessing. So it's not money that's the problem. But there is a danger with money, and that is that we get to where we start trusting in what money can do for us more than in what God can do for us. Did you know money does have power and money can do things? And if you aren't careful, you will get to where you start trusting the power and the authority that's in money and miss the fact that God is the one who gives us power to get this wealth. And so you have to guard against that. It's not money that's the problem, but it's trusting in money. You know, if money was just the problem, and if, if it was only like verse 23 said before he explained himself, that if you have money, how hard is it for them that have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? That's not really a complete explanation. He clarified it in the next verse and he says, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? If money was just the problem, then you know what? Most of you watching this program couldn't enter into the kingdom of God. And you may say, well, I'm not rich. If you've got a television set, you're richer than millions of people here on the face of the earth. Did you know I've heard it said before that if you have the equivalent of $10 in your pocket, that you are wealthier than 90% of the world's population. I mean, wealth is a somewhat relative thing. We may look at ads on television and because we don't have the, you know, five cars and three televisions and the newest DVD and the iPod and this and this gadget and that gadget, all of the advertisements may make us think that we're nothing until we get this. And so if you just get into that culture and start using that mindset, you may think you aren't a very prosperous person. 
But you know, the poverty level in the United States, I believe, is $2,000 a month. And I forget exactly what it is, but I think it's around there. If you were making less than that, you are considered poor in the United States. But you know what? That would be wealthy by most people's standards. I've been into countries in Romania and different places where their entire year's income is around $2,000 or something equivalent to that or less. Do you know what? If money, just having money was the issue and that that keeps us from the things of God, well then basically all the Western world would be excluded from entering into the kingdom of God. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Mark 10, 24 makes it very clear. It says, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? So it's really a matter of trust, reliance. That's what the word trust means. What are you relying on? Are you relying on your money? Are you relying on God? Well, it's easy to say, oh, I'm relying on God. Well, if you are, then why don't you do what he says about paying 10% in tithe? and giving offerings above that. And if you say, but, but I can't, I need this money, then you know what you're saying? I'm really relying on this money. I'm really trusting in my riches more than I'm trusting in God. Boy, this is strong stuff. These are some strong statements. And I know that there's not very many people that say these things, and so therefore I'm outside of the mainstream, even of Christians, what they say about this, and therefore some people just say, well, you can't be right. But I'm asking you to read these scriptures. I'm saying exactly what Jesus said and tell me how I'm violating what he said. This is exactly what he said. If your trust is in riches, it is hard for you to enter into the kingdom of God. And look at the next verse. If you think what I've said has been hard so far, look at this. In Mark chapter 10, verse 25, the next verse says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, his disciples were astonished before. But after he said this, look at this in verse 26, they were astonished out of measure. In other words, this it was over the top. It's like, oh man, if they were shocked before, now they can't even handle this. And they said among themselves, who then can be saved? Jesus said, if you are trusting in your riches, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a person who is trusting in their riches to enter into the kingdom of God. You know what? That's not what many people are saying today, but that's the importance that Jesus put on, first of all, turning your finances over to Him and trusting Him in this area of finances. Now, some people have tried to get around this by saying, well, this isn't talking about a camel, an animal going through the eye of a sewing needle, but rather it's referring to in Jerusalem, they had these big gates that were open during the day, but then at night they would close the big gates and inside of the big gate there was a smaller door that, you know, just people would use. And the only way you could get a camel through there was to unladen it, take everything off of the camel, get it down on its knees and make it scoot through this little thing. And that was called the eye of the needle. Did you know when I was in Israel, I asked our guide to take me and show me this eye of the needle. And he says, oh, well, yeah, it exists, but we haven't got time to go there. And I pressured him two or three different times. Finally, I just looked at him and I said, there isn't any gate called the eye of the needle, is there? And he said, no. And I said, why did you tell me that there was? And what it is, in Israel, all of the tour guides are trained by the government because tourism is one of their major attractions. And so they train them, and part of their training is you make these people have a wonderful experience so that it'll be good PR and it'll make more people come to the Holy Lands, and that's the way that they generate income. He even told me that one time he told a group of people on a bus they wanted to see the burning bush where Moses, you know, saw the burning bush. And there was a place out behind one of the service stations where a bush had burned the week before. And so he had the bus driver stop there and he told him, this is Moses' burning bush. And people were out there taking their picture next to this bush that had burned. And they thought that was the same bush that burned 4,000 years ago. It's unbelievable what people expect and are looking for. And so anyway, if they believe that there's a, a gate called the eye of the needle, well, then they tell the people, yes, it's here, but you know what? Nobody's ever seen it. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. 
This wasn't talking about just making it difficult. You have to unburden the camel and it's more difficult to get through. He was talking about something that's impossible because his disciples were shocked and they said, Who then can be saved? In verse 27, Jesus looked upon them and saith, looking upon them saith, With man it is impossible, but but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Jesus didn't say that this camel going through a needle, the eye of a needle, isn't just difficult, but he says it's impossible. He was physically talking about it is easier to get a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than it is to get a person who is trusting in riches into relationship with God. And I know some of you are astonished out of measure, but that is exactly the point that Jesus is making in this teaching. And that's exactly the point that I'm trying to get across. Trusting God in your finances is the least area of trusting God. It's not the greatest area. It's the least area. And if you can't do that which is least, you can't do that which is greater. This means that beginning to trust God and and do what He says about giving 10% and giving offerings and beginning to open up our hand and instead of counting all of this money as being our own money and it's ours to do with what we want to, instead we open our hand and say, God, it's yours. What do you want me to do? And you start following the instructions in Scripture. If you can't do that, if you can't trust God in your finances, then you know what? It's just about impossible for you to have a good relationship with God. But you know what? This is exactly what Jesus taught. It's exactly the reason that we have so many people in our churches today professing something and not possessing true relationship with God. Did you know it's typical, This I've heard this many times and I've talked to many pastors and they agree with this, that there's about 20% of their people that actually do all of the giving and keep the church going. 80% of the people... Uh, you know, they don't really finance the gospel. They'll give a tiny bit here and there. I heard Billy Graham quoted. I haven't been able to get it confirmed, but I heard him quoted as saying that he believes only about 20, 15 to 20% of people who profess to be Christians truly possess that born-again experience. So here's, here's a comparison. 80% of the people who go to church don't give. 80% of the people who profess Christianity probably don't possess it. Is it possible that it's only those who are really trusting God and have learned how to trust God in their finances that have a true, born-again relationship with God? I believe that's possible. And those are some strong statements, but I believe that they're all true.